Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. On his third day in office, President Trump signed a memorandum reinstating what's known as the global gag rule, or sometimes alternatively as the, quote, Mexico City policy. This is a policy that Republican presidents enact and Democratic presidents lift when they come to office. Simply put, the rule places restrictions on NGOs that receive U.S. government assistance about what they can say about abortion. As you can imagine, this policy is very much caught up in domestic U.S. politics about abortion. But when Donald Trump signed the order reinstating the rule, his version of it went much, much farther than the George W. Bush administration or any Republican administration since the Reagan era. On the line with me to discuss the global gag rule, its history and impact on women's lives is Seema Jalan, the executive director of the Universal Access Project and Policy, Women, and Population at the United Nations Foundation. She does an excellent job of explaining the policy and why Donald Trump's version of it is a big departure from previous Republican administrations and, in fact, may affect every aspect of U.S. global health assistance around the world. One quick note before we start. Many of you might know UN Dispatch, the website I edit, is supported by the United Nations Foundation, and I just want to make that disclosure clear. And now here is Seema Jalan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So there's a history of conservative administrations of the United States that have decided to restrict funding to U.S. uh, recipients of aid, uh, foreign NGOs, on any work that they do should they work on abortion with non-U.S. government funds. And that's been effect since that started with the Reagan administration. It was lifted by President Clinton, reinstated by um, the Bush administrations, and then of course lifted again by the Obama administration. So it's it's been it's come to be known as a political football. Uh, the community uh, was preparing for a reinstatement of global gag rule with the uh, start of the Trump administration. But what's been surprising is that the executive order that was released a few days ago is much more expansive Mm -hmm. than any prior iteration of the global gag rule. So let's talk about what what were those prior iterations of it? I mean, as you mentioned, the global gag rule is sort of caught up, or not sort of, it is caught up in domestic American politics over abortion. Um, But what were the the prior iterations uh, of it? Like, what exactly did it stipulate? 
exactly what it did, the way it was implemented, is that if a foreign NGO uh, received funding from the U.S. government uh, through the funding that the U.S. government provides on family planning, they were not allowed to receive U.S. funding if they did any type of work on abortion. So that that could include abortion services, but it could also be something as simple as offering a pamphlet of information about abortion or providing a referral to a client. And this is where, this is in countries where abortion is legal. Um, and what it, in effect, ended up happening is that some of the most important providers of a broad range of reproductive health services, uh, including, for example, providing condoms, other methods of family planning, uh, organizations that provide maternal health services like safe delivery or um, postnatal care, uh, organizations that provide HIV testing and counseling, the organizations that provide that full spectrum were disqualified from U.S. aid if with non-U.S. government funds they did any type of information or service provision on abortion. So so even something as simple as like offering a pamphlet that says abortion is one potential option for you as, as a patient, that is enough to disqualify that organization, that entity from receiving U.S. funds for things like IUDs or condom distribution or AIDS testing. Exactly. Um, and, and my understanding is that those organizations as well, or no organization that receives U.S. funding can uh, do any sort of advocacy work related to abortion, uh, principally to uh, encourage their government to like liberalize abortion laws. That's exactly right. So part of, one of the other impacts of the gag rule in the past has been that, and the, part of the reason it's called the gag rule is that it limits the ability of organizations to be a part of um, democratic uh, activities in their own countries where abortion is legal and where they want to have an influence over that type of policy in their own countries. So the last time this was implemented was during the George W. Bush administration. So what sort of um, quantitative or actual like uh, effect on the ground did it have in, in places where, you know, the U.S. was active in, in doing things like stemming HIV AIDS or, or other sort of global health interventions? What was the actual practical effect of the global gag rule for the last eight years that, that we have evidence uh, for? So there's been quite a few studies on what actually happened on the ground. And uh, the one main thing that's clear is that abortion rates in certain countries increased because the really important providers of family planning services lost their U.S. government funding. And so like, so, like who? Like, like what, what are some of the organizations that, that were affected? So, for example, two of the largest providers of family planning services globally are Marie Stopes International and the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And uh, they, because of discontinuation of funds from the U.S. government, uh, health clinics closed. And again, these are health clinics that provide a whole range of services, anything from HIV testing and counseling to family planning to maternal health to perhaps information or services on abortion um, closed, which impacted the entire health infrastructure in certain communities. So at the end of the day, the poorest and most marginalized individuals, especially women and girls, lost their access to basic health care. Um, so and, 
if you're one of these organizations, and I, I know you don't like represent them or anything, but so you have to make a decision, right? Are you going to include the word abortion in this pamphlet or are you, uh, and, and then therefore lose your U.S. government funding or are you just going to, to delete it? Is it like as simple as that? Every organization that's impacted has to do an analysis. And for the organizations I mentioned, Murray Stopes International, International Planned Parenthood Federation, they've already put out statements uh, since the executive order came out on Monday saying they will continue to provide comprehensive quality care to girls and women, and that includes a full range of services. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's also probably important to note that under a law dating from like the 1970s, um, any U.S. support for actual abortion services is prohibited, right? That's really important to note. Thank you for, for mentioning that. So it's been existing law for, for many decades that no U.S. government funds can be used for abortion services as a method of family planning. And so that firewall has existed for, for many decades. The global gag rule just takes it a step further by essentially cutting off uh, the poorest people's access to to basic things like family planning services as well. Mm -hmm. So okay, so so that was how it existed during the the Bush administration, the last Republican administration, which again it was expected with the coming um, Bush administration back in two thousand and one, and and now the Trump administration in two thousand nine. As you said, this is a political football, so it is expected that the global gag rule would be reinstated. Uh, but what seems to have happened uh, earlier this week when Donald Trump signed the memorandum reinstating it is in fact this is a massive expansion right of what the Bush administration policy had been what do we know uh, about how the Trump administration's interpretation of the global gag rule is different from that of the previous Republican administration yeah, and it's only been about 48 hours since we've seen the text of the administration's executive order putting into place essentially a Trump-Pence version of the global gag rule. The way it reads is that it will impact all of what the U.S. government funds for global health around the world. And it's significant for two reasons. Even before the prior iterations of global gag rule, the U.S is the largest provider of funds for governments on family planning. And the U.S. is the largest provider of funds as well for global health services around the world, period, especially for the poorest um, people on the planet. And so what the change that we saw on Monday is that the the, the amount of funding that's going to be impacted and the amount of programs that will be impacted by the more expansive rule that came out could be 15 times what we've seen in prior iterations. So, so the prior iteration affected only funding streams that were marked for family planning and reproductive health, which is something like $575 million. But the new kind of Trump version is it affects all global health spending, not just for reproductive health, but all any NGO around the world who receives any amount of money for things like what, like even malaria that has nothing to do with reproductive health still has to certify their compliance with the, the global gag rule. That's right. So you can, you could, you could theoretically see an organization that provides immunizations, but in sort of their network of care, they have a partner locally that provides medically accurate evidence-based information 
uh, legal information for uh, a woman around her abortion options, that would the whole stream would be disqualified from U.S. government funding. So can you maybe like walk me through a specific example? That, that was kind of a, a good one you just gave, but but kind of talk about how these NGOs are, are structured in a way. You said that um, one of these NGOs in its network might be uh, affected. Can you kind of like talk about how these funding streams actually work? Yeah, absolutely. So the some of the develop the best practices and development are working with local institutions and local partners because they are the most trusted and they know the best in terms of what best serves their communities um, in ways that are culturally appropriate and that makes sense. And so over several decades of U.S. leadership uh, providing global health and development services around the world, poverty reduction, uh, many of the best organizations partner with local institutions uh, or they partner with local hospital systems, they partner with local clinic systems. Um, many uh, U.S. Uh, and international organizations help to build the capacity of certain governments to provide um, quality care in terms of health services. So it's a very a complex and integrated system whereby uh, certain large organizations may have a complex web of partnerships in local countries that are both mm -hmm. uh, governmental and non-governmental. So like a large NGO that, that we may know of, you, could, you can pick any kind of NGO that, that you might have heard of, probably has partnerships with local NGOs at like the, the city or village level that you know, we've probably not heard of. Is that, that sort of what you're saying, that, that like these kind of large NGOs might uh, all of a sudden have all of their funding uh, cut off because one of those kind of local partners might, or in their network of local partners, m there might be included some reproductive health um, and family planning services that includes a pamphlet on abortion? That's, that's right. And I, I should note that we are still putting kind of the lawyers on leading the language that mm -hmm. came out on the executive order uh, on Monday afternoon. But in our layman's reading, um, that could be a way that it's read. Mm -hmm. and, and it's important that um, I think you identified this sort of intersects with two, I think, big trends in global development that have been happening over the past 15, 20 years. One is um, a recognition by the U.S. government and other major donors that local NGOs are typically the most effective and most impactful places to invest. They're where you know, your, your donor dollar gets stretched furthest uh, and to the, the best outcome for reasons you described, that they just kind of know the, the landscape better. Um, but also the second trend, which is um, sort of away from identifying individual diseases to fight and more towards supporting the health systems and health and hospital systems of, of countries, of governments, so that, you know, they follow the whole patient uh, and not just say a specific disease. And these are kind of, I think, two big trends over the last, you know, decade or so that may be sort of undermined, right? By, by this, uh, by this new, new sort of Trump version of the global gag rule. Yeah, and I would say, you know, if you if you think about it, for any of us, when we go to access healthcare, you know, you don't go to access healthcare um, on a general day with a very specific thing in mind. You know, you want to be able to go get quality care, dignified, respectful care that allows you to talk about whatever concern you might have, and then you might get specialized services after that. But it's it's not 
it's just not the way people live their lives that they want to go one place for um, to get access to condoms and contraception and go to a different place to get their children immunized and then a third place to get HIV testing and counseling. Um, it makes all of that work less effective. And as you note, uh, the best use of U.S. foreign assistance around the world is to ensure people can protect their health uh, in a comprehensive way. And um, the, the thing that's, you know, that's most troubling for us as a global community is that the poorest women and girls are the ones who are going to lose access to their basic health care with these new provisions in place. Because anyone who has access to private um, health care will continue to get the services that they need. These are people who are wholly reliant on um, government clinics, free healthcare services in their country to be able to do the best that they can for themselves and their children. And that's what all of us want, is to be able to have healthy families and healthy children. Um, so I guess like what's what's next? You said that you're still kind of like parsing the language. How what will indicate to you whether or not this is indeed as expansive as it, it appears to be um, on on the surface, or whether or not in fact it it might be a little more nuanced? Well, the next step that we're looking for is uh, now that the executive order has been released. Like, what's the policy guidance on it for the agencies that are directly impacted? So the State Department, USAID, um, Health and Human Services, and others. How are they going to be interpreting? what this means for their programs. And that's where, you know, that that's where the dust will settle in terms of how the agencies react and then the guidance that the agencies provide to, you know, missions around the world that are providing critical healthcare mm -hmm. services. But I mean, it is sort of in theory possible, uh, at least from my reading of, of this executive order that, um, you know, like a whole sweeping slew of U.S. Um, global health systems, everything from like fighting Zika to like malaria could be impacted and, and affected uh, by this. We are in this moment of coming together as a broader global health community to put all of our best minds and attention on this and to analyze together as a broad global health movement that works on everything from infectious diseases, non-communicable diseases, reproductive health, family planning, maternal health, coming together to, to come to terms with it. And as much as we might be able to, to help influence the way that it's actually implemented. So if, if in fact this is like as bad as it seems on surface, um, how might other countries, or do you expect like other countries in Europe or, or other donors to step up and, and fill the gap in any meaningful way? We've already seen um, there was an announcement out of uh, the Netherlands stepping up to help um, support continuity of care um, in reaction to the move by the U.S. administration this week. And, and certainly we welcome other major bilateral donors stepping up to ensure that people can continue to have access to basic health care. Um, but it, it doesn't um, take away from the importance of continued U.S. leadership on global health and reproductive health and family planning globally. Uh, over the last eight years, uh, again, the, and over the last several decades, there's longstanding bipartisan support for U.S. leadership on these issues. And this change threatens 
threatens a lot of mm-hmm. progress that's been made in um, cutting maternal deaths in half, in reducing the global HIV AIDS infection mm-hmm. rates, ensuring that children can survive beyond the age of five, that women have access to voluntary quality family planning services that best suit their needs so that people can plan their lives. There's been so much progress that stands to be lost mm-hmm. if all of this goes away. And, and, and it is, you know, worth, I think, emphasizing that this, you know, used to be kind of a, a one rare part of, of, of bipartisan consensus, not the family planning aspects of it, but, but the other kind of the, the malaria or the AIDS. I mean, you know, the president's malaria initiative, PMI, was President Bush's initiative. You know, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief was President Bush's emergency plan for AIDS relief. And, you know, as you said, these things did garner bipartisan support. So is there any potential for intervention by, by Congress to correct or, or influence the, the outcome of this, you know, potentially disastrous um, uh, new interpretation of the global gag rule? That's a good question. And one thing I do want to say is that there is longstanding bipartisan support for family planning as well. It may not have been as kind of far reaching as bipartisan support for some of those other issues. But, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, there wasn't a debate at all whether the U.S. government should support basic access to health care for women around the world. It's 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 a relatively new phenomenon Mm -hmm. that the sort of debates domestically have translated into how the U.S. operates globally. Uh, so wanted to, to add that. Hmm. There's a lot of work for Congress to do this year, and there are a lot of champions in Congress who have a longstanding record on both sides of the aisle about American values and American leadership around the world. And uh, come this spring, Congress will be making decisions about how the U.S continues to be a leader in that space in terms of the funding we provide. And so those are are important things that we are monitoring and working closely with our allies on both sides of the hill. Uh, Well, Seema, thank you so much for uh, helping us make sense of of, of what just happened and why it seems to be sort of an aberration from what we uh, what we might have expected. Thank you so much for your interest. It's um, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it. Right. Thank you all for listening. Glad to get that explanation of this unique aspect, we shall say quirk, harmful aspect, frankly, of U.S. Uh, foreign policy. It's not something I think that's on the, the radar of, of sort of mainstream casual uh, viewers of U.S. foreign policy. So I think it's important to point out um, just how, how Donald Trump's interpretation of it is is pretty much a, a wild departure from what we have come to expect from quote typical Republican administrations. I suspect there'll be a lot coming down the, the pipe in the next weeks, months, years that are also further examples of how Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy might uh, depart radically from what we've come to expect from previous Republican administrations, but we'll see. All right. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye.